Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Hi, welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is episode 38, and today we're going to talk about blended families. Many of us have been raised in or currently have non-traditional blended step families, and there is so many wonderful things about having a step family. Sometimes it can be really, really fulfilling, and sometimes it's just hell. And we're here to talk about what can make it go really well and what things to try to navigate to be able to make those rough waters go smoother. So welcome, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. We're back. I'm Ann Kelly. And I'm Sue Marriott. So I thought what we would do is, you know, if you just associate for a second to the term stepmother, <laughs> what, what comes to mind? Oh, it has to be Cinderella. <laughs> it's not good, right? It's all Disney. Right. And witches, right? And witches. Not, not the fairies. Poisonous apples <laughs> and cackles. That's right. And then if I were to say stepchild, just first off the bat, what is your association? Poor, mistreated. That's right. You know, I, I have red hair. And so there's a there's a term, you know, redheaded stepchild, which is even worse than just a stepchild. So <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're low on the totem pole. I'm really low. So it's interesting that that's in our culture, even though it's so pervasive. And that's the family systems that many, many, many children are living in. But we have this something in the back of our mind that just has this air of evil, if you think of Disney, <laughs> right? Intentional evil, even. Well, and as we get to talking about it, it really comes clear and makes sense why this reputation ends up happening when you think about trying to blend somebody into a life with children. It really can set them up to feel like the evil one or be experienced like that. So I think it will make a lot of sense as we go on about why Disney depicts it that way. That's right. So we're going to do some myth busting real quick. So one of the myths is that step families aren't as healthy as what one would call real families. And, you know, we've already debunked that a little bit because actually when you think of what is a real family, right? What is your, again, what is your first association? Uh, I'm going to date myself, but leave it to Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, exactly. It's two heterosexual married parents, first marriage, of course, and 2.5 children, 2.5 children that they probably didn't have any reproductive services to help them. <laughs> <laughs> and that they're all living together. And they're all straight children. <laughs> probably so. Well, you know, outside of the kids being straight, the parents being straight, that's 23% of families in the United States actually kind of fit in that category of real family. My son at one point was giving a little talk and he said, he was old enough to know that that was not a majority. <laughs> His math teacher had taught him that that was not a majority. Yet we act as if it is. And we compare ourselves to this, I don't know if we would want to say outdated, but it's just statistically not valid ideal. Right. And I like what you're saying is like you compare yourself as if this ideal is anything less than that is somehow subpar and destined to only try to, to reach that ideal rather than having its own unique features to be thinking about. That's right. So so that's the first myth, right, is that the stepfamilies are not as healthy as real families. Now, the part that's true about that is that sometimes kids do struggle in these families, and we're going to say a little bit more about why that is. But in any statistic, 
it's not 100%. And there are some of these kids that actually do better than kids from first marriage intact families. However, there are some struggles that these guys go through. So we want to talk about that and how to prevent it. Right. And if you stop to think about it, there's so many things affecting that factor about how kids are seen as adjusting when they are among step families, because to become a step family, most likely as a child, you've experienced a split of your original family in a divorce. Likely there's conflict that's ensued in between and then the coming together. So there's a lot of multiple factors that could be affecting that. That's exactly right. So basically 80% of these kids, this is going back to the myth that they're not as healthy. 80% of these kids without any intervention or anything, they do great and they're fine and they look just like any of these other kids. But one of the things is they can sometimes be more resilient because they've gone through more loss and they've gone through more transition. And so there's that side of things, right? And what's interesting too about this, again, just debunking the myth is that it's the parental conflict with the ex-spouse that is actually one of the factors that where these kids don't do as well. So it's not so much the new marriage, but it's the continuing conflict and the stress that is brought upon by divided custody and things like that of a failed marriage. Right. That's true just of divorced families in general without the blended families is that the effect of children's adjustment to divorce in general is significantly related to the level of discourse among the parents. It isn't the divorce itself. It's whether they are able to do it in a relational way. And, you know, actually that reminds me just one other little fact about that is that it's also when there is a huge, so this is just, we're just going to talk about divorce, you know, effective divorce on kids by itself. And one of the things that I thought was really cool and painful, both cool and painful, because if you divorce and you, let's say just traditionally, the husband leaves and he was the main wage earner. And so the kids don't see him at all or very much. And they have to deal with it. And they're still living with mom. And they have to go through this very massive socioeconomic drop from what they're used to, which probably means moving and changing schools often because you've got to move further out of town or whatever, or move closer to mom's family or what have you. And those situations tend to be harder on the kids just because it's not just the divorce. They're having to deal with moving and losing their kids and losing their routine and losing their school. Like it becomes the losses begin to really stack up in the fear induced in the mom. Absolutely. Yeah. The terror versus parents that can really make sure that that socioeconomic drop doesn't happen and that the kids get to pretty much keep their routine. Yeah. They might have to go back and forth, but they are able to see their friends and remain in school and things like that. That's going to help a lot. The other big one, and this is a very meaty one, is that you can't mess with the mind of the child and their perceptions of the other parent. So mm. even if the other parent is a SOB and mm. you know that he's going to say that he's going to show up to get Johnny on Saturday and you know for a fact that he's going to be drunk and he's not going to show up or something like that. Let's just say that. Your job would be, you can't really, like, if he's supposed to show up on Saturday, there's not a lot you can do to protect the child other than you don't fill the child's mind with what a SOB his dad is. You sort of let him figure that out himself because there's periods of development where kids really need to idealize their parents. And he will figure it out on his own, but you want that to be his own experience of the other parent. In other words, you don't want to mess up the internalized image of the other parent at all. Right. You would probably want to let 
him process his own feelings about it and his disappointment and try to encourage him how to talk to his dad about it and how relationships are difficult. So you wouldn't want to ignore it for certainly, but you, you know, you wouldn't want to like cover it up, but you also don't want to throw that kerosene on the kerosene <laughs> on it or throw that parrot into some evil image. That's yeah. right. Throw him under the bus. So the second myth is that set families break up more often and that that's really a very bad thing. And the fact of the matter is they do actually, second marriages do tend to fail more often than first marriages. First marriages fail. <laughs> it's like, would you buy a product if you already knew that it was had a 50% fail rate? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so first families, first marriages, actually, it's on a decline, believe it or not, but still are at about a 49 to 50% rate fail rate. Fail rate. That's right. Now, if you divorce and you remarry, 75% of people that divorce do remarry. And then that divorce rate goes up to in the 60s, right? But the group that actually has the highest breakup rate are folks that live together, they cohabitate, but they don't marry. It's just a kind of quirky truth. They're just kind of seeing, I, I actually had lunch with John Gottman and was talking about this exact thing. And he was just saying that they're just a different animal. And for whatever reasons that they have to not marry as a group, not, you know, you know, couples that don't for some specific reason, but as a group, as a whole group, they're much more likely there's something about the staying power that is much weaker than set families. So what I'm saying is that there's some truth in it, which is that it is a little higher, but it's not what people typically expect. And the other thing about it is that a lot of times the first marriages, they last a lot longer. It takes a lot longer to figure it out. Whereas with second marriages and stepfamilies, usually they figure it out pretty quick because it's so hard for the first two years. And so let me ask you this. Do you think that the reason that the number is a little higher is because whatever the problems were in the first marriage, you bring it into your second marriage and you begin to do the same thing? Definitely. I think that's one of the reasons, but I think there's also much other reasons. But right. I think sometimes we repeat thinking that we're going to have the grass is greener and we found just the opposite of other partner. And then shockingly, we start having some of the very similar issues. And then we've lost that idealism of the new start. So one of the things is they, they do divorce earlier. And one of the leading factors of that is the adjustment to non-related kids. So the second marriage will do a little better if there's no kids. If there are, if there is kids, that's where it's just the Achilles. It's really, really difficult to suddenly move in and have the primary bond be with your partner, your loving partner, and someone else, even if it's a child. And then that child having their primary bond over here. And so the process of who in the heck are you coming into the system is tough. That is the big deal for why these marriages can go bad. And by marriage, you know, I mean that widely. But that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it is because it is a high risk group. But if you do it right, and there are some things you can specifically do, we can really reduce that number. Well, and there's things to really look for and plan for. And I think for most of us, when we can sort of see where the stress is coming from and predict it and know it, it somehow, it takes the stress. When you think it's unique to you or to your partner and you start assigning a lot of hostility because these things are happening, it's really painful. And it's, since you've already been through divorce, it's a lot easier to think, I'm just going to go through this process again. I know how this happens. And they don't often have children that hold them together like the first marriage for the same length of time. 
So the bad and the good news is the second marriage usually is going to fail by two years. So usually if they, if individuals can make it through that first two years, which is hell, which is hell, (laughs) (laughs) they've got some of that adjustment already accomplishing, accomplished. That's exactly right. And then the last myth that we want to just address is that the stepkids don't do as well and that they're doomed, basically, that the stepkids that are, you know, if you divorce and you remarry, you've screwed your kids over, let's just say, that that is a popular thinking. And the truth is that some of these kids end up better adjusted than, you know, the population where there's not divorce. I think I've already mentioned that there is some struggle, particularly academically and socially and things like that. It's not that it's no issue, but it can build resilience and there can be real gains from it because they also have a lot more people that love them in their life if things go well. Their Rolodex increases, (laughs) their bench deepens. And, you know, the truth is that all families have issues and every single family has difficulties, similar needs, you know, love, acceptance, so bringing order to a chaotic world and giving a sense of belonging. But Steph family issues are more exposed. These families kind of have their rear ends hanging out a little bit more and more people looking, or at least the perception that there's more vulnerability from that perspective. Now, one other, just to look at this in a little bit more of a fine-tuned way, there's a little bit of a difference. Timing is a really important thing. There's a little bit of a difference between boys and girls. So with boys... They just, in general, tend to do better. They adjust better. They roll with it. You know, they just kind of whistle along, again, as a group. And when we say boys and girls, we're really aware of it's not all boys and it's not all girls and the gender continuum. But the research is about boys and girls, so we're going to talk about it that way. Now, I'll tell you that divorce is harder on boys and the remarriage is easier on boys for whatever reasons. They tend to do better. Whereas with girls, the divorce tends to be easier and it's the remarriage that is difficult. And so if one of your kids is a girl, if you have a little girl, a daughter, then that's going to be an area of special attention because one of the, one of the things that the research shows is that particularly as your daughter ages, that a divorce will be a little bit harder and a remarriage will be harder on her than others. So it's interesting if if it happens before she's nine years old, she does better. But once she's nine years old and above, it begins to get a little bit more difficult. It's even broken it down where early on, these daughters can be more antagonistic than boys. And then in early adolescence, they're going to withdraw more so. And then it's late adolescence where that we really have more poor outcome when we're trying to re-blend a family for these girls. So developmental timing and the specifics of your family are a really big deal related to this. So Sue, is what you're saying, just to be clear, is that those ages at the time of the blending, so That's if right. you're blending prior to the age nine versus blending all the way into later adolescence, depending on the timing of the initial blending, you could see a real different reaction. And that makes sense if we think about the developmental process of the nine-year-old and younger still being so integrated into the family and focused on relationships and caring, that would make a a lot of sense. That's right. That's exactly right. And the good news about this is that time helps everybody. So that, you know, within two years, usually kids, even girls are, uh, have recovered from a divorce, but between two and seven years, they've also recovered from the, all the changes that happen with the reformulation of a family and creating a new family. 
and what we want to do is we want to speed that process up as much as possible. So that's part of why we're going to be focusing on some suggestions about that. We can see some, and certainly I'm sure you have in your practice, some predictable patterns that we see play out that are completely understandable in the context of development and growth and love and relationships. But boy, you can really see it play out in a way that is painful often. That's right. So for example, and this is also answers the question of why does time help? A lot of times the second marriage comes with, guess what? Like a lot of, like you're in love and things happen really fast. And so there's lots of factors that promote a fantasy and also even just the burden of, okay, we, I have to get this right this time. I want to stabilize my family very quickly. This person adores me and I adore them. So it's going to go really well. This is going to be great for the kids. Right, right. So a sense of rushing too. after you oftentimes post divorce, people feel guilty. They feel sad for the child and they have a need for and a desire for a co-parent that they feel that they lack. So I think often what we can see is that people rush to the marriage sometimes and and then at, with the marriage, try to rush to what you're saying, sort of the romanticized or idealized idea of what our new family configuration is going to look like. That's right. It's born with a little bit more, it's more ripe for fantasy than when you're already together with someone and you're planning children or even if you've been together for quite a while and you accidentally get pregnant, like those are just a very different scenarios than this pressure of you hit the ground running and go. So let me ask you this, like what about being around people that are really goo goo gaga in love? Yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes that's not, I mean, you can feel so happy for them, especially if it's your best friend or and you're watching that, it's so much... Yeah, for about, what, five minutes? Five minutes. <laughs> but to sit in the middle of it, uh, you feel like an outsider. You feel like a like a intruder. Exactly. So here's the problem. So even as big old grown-up adults like we are, <laughs> with peers, we feel uncomfortable, right? Most of us do, when you've really got that early love thing happening. But imagine shrink yourself, and that's your mom. And all of a sudden, she's texting and calling and acting different and goo goo gaga and maybe infrequently in these families the children haven't seen their parents in love and either because they've been divorced for a long time or they've lost and it's not just divorce right it's also widow you know if, if your partner deceased and then you remarry or they may have seen them even in a hap in, in a marriage for a period of time with a lot of love but the act of falling in love, and we've talked quite a bit on the podcast of what happens chemically in our brains when you fall in love and that you become obsessive and less aware of your surroundings of anything but your love interest. So it's such a good point, Sue, that to think about a child watching their parent go through that. Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> and not you can't help it. And so there's no fault here. There's no blame. It's just the natural way things fall. You don't want to not be in love and you don't know, want to not express it because it's, it's a very positive experience. But we're just adding some empathy for why these families um, can use a little bit of support and assistance. Well, empathy and awareness too. Also, depending on the developmental age of your child, it's a different stage of when a child can handle that and how you talk to them about it. So it is something to be aware of in your body that you can give off a very exclusionary feeling to people around you and to be real mindful of that when children are around 
what that experience is going to be felt like and how you talk with them about it and how they experience it. Right. Which isn't to say to repress it, but yeah, this mindfulness I think is fantastic. And you know, the other thing that when we think of these, as these families develop and why it gets better over time is that there's this fantasy. We've already talked about that a little bit and this pressure to get it right this time. So again, there's, there's often a rush, but you're not seeing each other accurately and you're not seeing the situation accurately initially. But once that fantasy begins to fade and you're, and you go through the, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into phase (laughs) and looking at your watch and, you know, wondering where the exit is, then that's actually assuming you stay. And again, remember within two years, a lot of these uh, marriages do dissolve, but assuming you stay now we've, we've dissolved the fantasy. We're going to deal with reality. And this is a very positive, exciting pro relationship development for that bubble to be popped. So what's good about that is once that happens, then you can really get busy doing actual conflict that is productive. Because if you think about it, you're blending two cultures and it's even things like, you know, how do you eat a watermelon, right? You never even think about it because it's, it becomes your culture. But when all of a sudden somebody comes in and they salt their watermelon and, you know, there, there's a, there's a cultural crash a little bit, what to do with a wet towel, how to make a tuna fish sandwich, how to make a lunch, all of these things. And so as the relationship, again, this is kind of why it gets better over time and what we want to speed up. We want to speed you into that your goal is to recognize that you have this cultural, these two cultural differences and they're differences that you wouldn't even know that were a thing. Like, you know, what do you do with a wet towel? Some families, it's perfectly fine to throw it down in a pile and other families, there's strict rules about exactly what you do with a wet towel. I mean, it's a silly example, but you don't even realize that that becomes your culture and that becomes your habit and that becomes what you do. Well, and it's even something that you don't even recognize that it's a cultural difference until it happens. And I think one of the things that can struggle in blended families is that when we recognize the differences, sometimes we feel affronted a little bit. Right. Like, like, what do you you mean you don't salt the watermelon? That's crazy. (laughs) Especially kids love to express things if that's not out. And if you think, obviously, at the different developmental ages. So I think one of the things is, I agree, we want to speed things up. But we also want to be aware. So, so when we're talking about these differences, part of what we're wanting to express to you guys is that as you're going into this process and deciding to blend families, the more that you guys can talk about these differences, the better. A lot of them you won't even recognize until you've blended and you've moved in. But I think one of the things we want to recommend to start with, and that is that you don't try immediately to create one united front that you have to bring the kids along and the and the parents along and it involves dialogue and discussion. So if someone's throwing the towel, for instance, on the floor, it could behoove us first to sort of get used to that as a different process, but then very quickly get into like, how does our family want to do these things? And to try to generate the combining, the evolution of one rather than this is the way it needs to be done now, real categorical. <laughs> but that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because the way, like, yeah, how you load a dishwasher is the right way to load a dishwasher. Exactly. <laughs> so what we're saying, folks, is that you have a culture that you've created, and it's way better. It's going to help you blend families. It's way better for you to recognize that it's just a way. It's just a way, not the way. Right. And actually, the more, if you can find things that you can give on, then you can hold things 
that are actually more important to you. And this really comes up around like uh, holidays and things like that, how you celebrate birthdays. And I think what's really important is not only the forming of the new, I think when kids and parents get to process kind of the loss of the old, because there really is a loss. People put white Christmas tree lights as opposed to colored or just there's so many variations that you don't even know that's in your culture. And when you discover it as a cultural clash, how you handle it, and as you develop one, kids go through feelings of loss that they didn't recognize. They were in this idealized state of moving in all together and this is going to be fun. And all of a sudden it's like this record scratches because it's, wait, we don't do it that way. Wait, that's not how it's done. So what's an example then of creating a we out of white Christmas lights versus colored because those obviously (laughs) don't go together and you know people have a lot of feelings about this so it's a great example and I think that's your point where it takes some time what I'm going to start with the proverbial what not to do and that's oh no 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 that looks horrible or you know (laughs) even the white Christmas lights even the white yes (laughs) (laughs) and so you know when you're working especially for the step parent with the stepchild first recognize that you might actually hear the child say, oh, that's dumb. And that could be kind of triggery and to realize your own reaction to that. And then to really help the the parent join with the child. Oh my gosh, that would be weird. You've been doing it that way. And we've been doing this this way. I can see why it would be good that way. And like where you're, you're really first validating their way and giving it some credence. I think as we've been talking about, the more that the, the child feels validated that that could be a very perfectly reasonable way. That doesn't mean we land there. I love that. I think that you said that really well. And, you know, once you get to this stage, then guess what? The couple actually finally gets the honeymoon that they were looking for. <laughs> it might be seven years down the road, but once the, some of those things have been resolved and you find win-wins and you figure out a way to both hold your history, but also create something that is new and different, that is a new culture, that is the blended culture, then the family, the conflict tends to go down, the stress goes down, and then you can find your in love feelings and really express them in a it's it's easier, right? Yeah, so that that record scratch at the very beginning. You get to put the record on again as y'all work these things out. I think some of the hardest parts though is in discipline because especially if you've had two parents coming in and blending. So there's there's all these different options. There's one where there's only one of the couple has children. And so you have a step parent, but no blended siblings. And then you have blended siblings. And especially with blended siblings, we've already set up patterns of discipline and how things go and permissiveness versus boundary setting. And I think I can see that is the probably primary cause of conflict when two families come in because they hit more on the level of risk or more on the level of, of lack of safety when one child is being treated more permissively than the other child, you can see the crass of that culture could actually lead to something that would scare one. And so there tends to be a tendency to want to get in there and maintain, especially the less permissive, more boundary setting parent with a more permissive parent there is a real temptation to get in there and try to micromanage and like get on board with one family plan. But of course, one of the recommendations would be that the step parent not jump in for the first year or so in that direct disciplinary role. 
Right. This is one of the uh, tips and tricks of what to do and what not to do, right? Because we want to get you to that honeymoon stage if you, right, <laughs> if you haven't right. hit that yet. And the tip that you're talking about is to watch for polarization mm-hmm. within the couple around parenting. Because here's the scenario, kind of like you're saying, is that often there's either, you know, you, you've been single for a while, so your primary becomes your kids. And what will happen is the bio parent that's been single for a while tends to shift towards a more permissive, loving style, but the emphasis there on permissive. So, you know, you're sitting on the couch and you look over and you're like, what do you want for dinner tonight? You know, pizza. Okay, where? Papa John's, you know. Right, where the child gets to end up making a lot of decisions with one parent. Right, because you're co-regulating and it's normal and, you know, there's not, it's fine in a sense, but then you get somebody else coming in and the biological parent with the child will tend to drift towards a permissive caring style. And then what happens is the person that the new person coming in on the scene begins to be, to look around and say, what is going on here? These kids talk to you so bad and why do they, you know, pizza is really bad for you. And I can't believe how often that you feed them pizza. (laughs) Right. And what they end up doing is this sort of counter reaction or as part of the issue is that they will shift to a more aggressive firm style because they want to whip these kids into shape. Right. And you can see how well right there where Disney got their call on the step family. Exactly. <laughs> nothing, totally. like, nothing like having the other parent go, what pizza on the couch, we're going to sit at the table. And, and then the child doesn't always get to make the decisions. All of a sudden, now there's another parent role in that position, you could see where that would immediately create some tension and some threat, which of course, remember that also creates tension for the biological parent who had grown used to more of a collaborative approach with their child. And then they have to, you know, feel the triangulation of that role of wanting to be connected to their partner, but also the shift in role with their child. That's exactly right. And so what we want to do is we want to look for the health of both styles of parenting and the health related to the biological parent who's been hanging out with their kid for however long is the love and the care, right? That's the strength of that, of course. And then the health of the person coming in has to do with order and boundaries and clarity around, you know, I end here and you begin there. And that's a very healthy thing to bring in. And so if you, instead of polarizing and saying my way is right and you guys are screwed up or, oh God, don't talk to her this way. She, you're, she's scared of you. And you know, like that's a polarization versus you both moving towards the health in each system. So what you want to move towards is the firm, loving space where it has both things. It has good, healthy boundaries and clarity. So the child is, it's predictable. They know their place that they are going to orbit the couple and that's good. But also there's a lot of care and respect, you know, with which that happens. So the firm, loving parental role is just whether you're step family or not, that that's really what you're aiming for. Right. And to be able to create that away from the child to kind of come to a decision about how that's going to come about and really work hard not to play that out in front of the kids. You know, I can't believe you're letting them order a pizza again, or, you know, you're never, what what about what I want for dinner or that dialogue happening with the children is going to set up a triangulation kind of feeling between 
the step and the bio and the children. So speaking of that, that leads us to our second tip and trick that we really want to get across to get you to the couple honeymoon is there's this whole with three. And of course, you know, there may be six or maybe a ton of kids, but just we're just focusing on kids as one unit, then the parent, the biological parent typically, and then the other parent coming in, right? And with three, you always know there's an insider and an outsider. And so, you know, we had hinted at this before, but the more stuck one gets in an insider position or an outsider position, the more painful it is. So for example, the, you know, we've been talking on this podcast a lot about attachment. The child has their primary attachment and their comfort with this very meaty relationship with their parent. And that is, I mean, nonverbal and how, how loud we speak and our pace that we speak, all of that is, is pre-established. And then and has been there for years, has been there the whole the child's whole life. So then you have the other person coming in. In this example, the child and the biological parent are the in. And then the other person coming in is the out. And so the middle person, which is the parent and partner, the bio parent, the bio parent and by bio, you know, it could be adopted, whatever, but like the primary, the first parent, good point. And if they just see the new spouse or the new person coming in as crazy, that reinforces the polarization and the out status of that person versus if they see that it's a very vulnerable thing that when the child's not around, you know, you guys are tight as thieves, but the child comes around and you lose them. That's a painful position for that person to be in. And a very common one described. Very, 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 very common. Let's run over that a little slower. I think what you're saying is, the common position that the very difficult position is for the the step parent to feel on the outside of this re, this dyadic relationship even if it's multiple children but the system that's really intrinsic and been felt for a long long time and to be felt i mean anytime we feel as an outsider we're naturally supposed to feel threatened that's not a healthy thing to feel for us so we naturally get in a threatened state and for the biological or the adoptive parent, the primary parent, to really be aware of that, uh, that you have, then the parent has an instinct, one, to protect their children, because that's also biologically, naturally driven. And then you have the spouse that also needs protection because they're feeling on the outside. That's exactly right. And then the other thing that can happen is the parent, the biological, we're just calling biological parent, now is close with and cuddling with partner on the couch and now guess who's the outside of that unit, right? Mm-hmm. It's the child. Suddenly the child goes from in to out very dramatically. And so basically we want to be have empathy for the child when the two of you are together. Have empathy for the a new spouse coming in when you're with your child. And then also empathy for you, the one that's in the middle. <laughs> because it's a very hard position to be trying to manage all this. And you don't want to be choosing, of course, Yet, you know, you're pulled in these different directions. So, you know, we want to, like, I think with awareness of that, and we want to lower the polarization and lower the in-out status so that if you're cuddling with your partner and the child comes in, that child feels very welcome and they can sit next to either of you and they can be, you know, that they're, they haven't been kicked out. And then the same so that if you're having some time, you're watching TV with your child and your partner comes home, that they get very welcomed and encouraged to join. And these are little ways that one could facilitate more of a 
fluidity among those things. And it doesn't mean that you don't get ch- alone time with your child, but just that you're mindful of how that, that of, of navigating those waters. And uh, to think about the relationship between the step and the children and to make sure that they spend some time forming their own bonds so that that relationship gets solidified. And that's what we mentioned to begin with over time that starts happening more and more. So that experience of the outside starts going down. So that's another reason why we start experiencing it over time, things getting better because we start feeling that if things go well, we start feeling that threat to go down. But to just remember that that threat, when you feel it, is a natural threat. And when you feel it in your body, if you can recognize it in a mindful way that this is a natural threat, because if you don't, what ends up happening is you feel threatened, you feel upset, and you can easily project that outwardly, and that can create the conflict between you and your partner. That's right, because pain trumps empathy. Because when you're in a threatened state, it's very hard to be in this generous, empathetic you know, perspective taking place. So we really want to be attentive to the neurobiological mandates, really, that have to happen in this forming of this new relationship. Now, let's move on to another tip. And that is to watch for losses and loyalty bonds and too much change at one time. That's a lot, but we're just going to fill you with tips and tricks. So one of the things that the research has found is loss of the parent, and this, you know, flows naturally from what we're saying, loss of parental attention is a really key, frequent theme for stepkids. Yeah, we, and that's a little bit of what we've been talking about, loss of parental attention. It's already probably been happening in the sense of a divorce and conflict and the adjustment that one parent had to go through then oftentimes there's some period of time where healing happens and then joy returns and then you have a connection and a child caregiver bond and that's going really well and then you enter somebody new, then the child is going through that experience of loss again. That's exactly right. And so watch for change and how quickly change is happening. So be careful about that. And then moving on to the next one, and again, we've already hit this a little bit, but it's creating a new culture and a we culture. And you really want to tend to that. So we've talked about that a little bit. So we can move on to the last forming new routines is really, really new important. routines, new traditions that are um, unique to both families. That we are, haven't talked a little bit about there's 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 you need to bring some of the old traditions in. And that's through objects, through things in the house and keeping some traditions and honoring traditions of both blended families where we learn that's our tradition. Now it's, it's your tradition. Now it's going to become ours. And then we think it's important to form brand new traditions that are unique to that family blend. And so the last one is about ex-spouses. You know, I'd mentioned before, don't mess with your child's internal idea of the other parent. Just let them have it and let them work it out and uh, be supportive and catch them. But this is even more specific to that, which is that one of the most stressful things is conflict between the ex-spouse and the custody issues. And the and this, again, it brings us into not our best self often, and it's very, very stressful on the kids. So what's interesting is if a spouse dies and the family goes on, those kids tend to do better than if there's a divorce. And one of the reasons for that is that if the parent dies and they're married and they're in love, they're going to have representations of that 
lost parent all through the home and they're going to be revered and loved and talked about and talked about at gatherings and missed and in other words they're kept alive in this very positive way in the child now with divorce of course that gets very very complicated so what we're saying basically is to figure out a way whether the spouse is gone entirely or you know you can't get them out of your life <laughs> and to regulate yourself unless it's a nine like let's say you're having conflict with your ex-husband or your ex-wife basically unless it's 911 somebody's bleeding that we really want to downregulate and work as hard as you can to get along collaborative co-parenting is the very very best it's the ideal if you can't do that the very next best is to just have a peaceful coexistence so you might not cross paths you might not talk very much but you want you're you're, you're basically parallel you work in parallel with one another and that is actually a pretty effective method particularly in a high conflict divorce if you can get there then that's what you're going to want to do and so you're going to want the the ideal as you mentioned Sue is that there is some collaboration and that the child feels that. So the word is that there's continuity. You, you want some, right. some feelings of connections. And in fact, if that ex could come into the home during transitions, if they feel welcomed, if it feels like the relationship didn't get severed, because think of the message we're sending the children when the relationship goes so poorly that it's severed. And now these two people we thought, you know, were in love and were our parents now don't speak to one another. That if we think about all the messages and attachment, that's a huge message to the child that when things go wrong, relationships end and they're cut off. So the more that you can work along the way, by the way, in divorce to make it collaborative prior to ever getting there, but even if it's been a little while to reheal so that you can have transitions and you can have dialogues and you could go to sporting events and you can engage at sporting events where the child sees that they don't have to make a choice between the two. That's really, really important. That's right. And you know, there are couples that really can't do that for, right. any, for any number of reasons. They're high conflict. And so in those cases, then when it really can't be resolved, but whoever's listening, if there's any way to open your heart, because the kinder you are to the other person, you're probably going to get something a little better. I don't mean be a doormat at all, but if we can move it a little bit in that direction, it might downregulate the system and calm people down. And so if you can find ways to be generous, it will, you will often get that back. And that's only for your child. You don't have to, you can hate the person, but if you guys can get along, it's best. Now in those cases where you can't, then you know, schedule trumps everything. Just go by the schedule. It, there's nothing personal about this. We're going to just create it and do it. And you know, more distance might be better in those cases. Well, in transitions happening where you don't have a lot of interactions so that the child doesn't have to absorb that there's distance. Because even if you're just being cordial, but you're extremely distant, a child, their neuroceptions pick that up. So probably transitions at school are much better if you haven't been able to get to that place. And if you can approve, remember, you're focusing on the parenting. You don't have to. And when you talk to your child, you talk to him about, you know, your mom's a really great mom. Your dad's a really great dad. You have to talk to, you don't have to talk about their, uh, their, their obnoxious obnoxious (laughs) behaviors as, as a spouse. Exactly. So we've filled this episode with tons of things to do and, ways to focus on keeping the child at the center. A lot of times people make the mistake of 
I'm in love and this is so great. And as the relationship goes, the family goes. And that's true in first families. But, you know, later blended families, we really have to attend to the kids and work on those relation, those up-down relationships for your marriage. Like it actually will help you have a successful, happier relationship. This is important too. It doesn't mean you have to be close. There are some step families that actually can have quite a bit of distance between the step parent and the child. And if you can find a place of homeostasis where there's not war and there's not hostility and there's not hurt, then that's actually a good spot. So you don't necessarily, a lot of times people have the fantasy of being a parent and maybe you're going to be a distant aunt figure or a distant uncle, but a generally benevolent person that is actually, that's a model for healthy families. And here's the hope, and we're going to end with a lot of hope, which is that while there's some challenges, there's some real strengths in these families. And I'll tell you one thing, that the second marriage, once it gets through all this BS <laughs> and this pain and heartbreak, actually tend to be happier. And then the kids finally do get what the original fantasy was. But there was just a little bit of a journey to get there. Yeah, usually around probably about seven years to nine years, you were saying right before we started the show, that then the blended families function and look just like original families. That's right. So what any hardship or loss has been processed and yeah, that they look really great. Then as a matter of fact, you can't tell a blended family from a first family once you get these years underneath you and you work through these specific things. You know, Sue, before we wrap up, we've been doing a lot of talking in very traditional terms and we haven't talked much about how these relate, some of the statistics we're speaking of, et cetera, relate to alternative families or homosexual families or same-sex families. Well, actually, no, I'm really glad you brought that up. I had actually meant to get to it earlier, which is there's some really interesting research that, first of all, GLBTQ-headed families I love, love, love talking about this because their family spectrum is so different. It's like a rainbow. So there's a whole lot of biological parents that are gay or lesbian or trans or consider themselves queer, but basically same-sex headed families is the way we'll say it, that sometimes you're in a heterosexual relationship and you have a baby and then you come out later in life. That's especially my age. <laughs> that was more kind of what happened. But kind of basically starting at about my age and down, then there's so many ways to create a family. And in particular, these couples have been so creative. And it's such a rainbow, because there's much more mixed race families, adoption, grandparent families, taking in your niece or nephew. It's just so beautiful and colorful. But in all of those cases, you're still dealing often with having to get along with non-related kids. And we hadn't mentioned this before, but it's really different when, you know, the underwear is your own versus it's someone that you're not related to. <laughs> Actually, if it's anybody else's, but particularly a child or whoever that you're not related to. Right. Meaning that when you, your child that's related to you, you feel so close to you that when they're doing something, you're annoying, you're not going to feel it as much. It's just like you don't see your own underwear on the floor as much as you will somebody else's, your, your partner's. So your children talking poorly at you, et cetera, you're not going to feel that as much. But when your partner starts seeing your child talk back, it's going to sit the hair on the back of their neck up. And you're like, what? They didn't talk so poorly. But what we're saying is even with all these mixed different same-sex families, 
they as well experience separation and divorce and blended families and 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 oftentimes sometimes it's not a, a divorce situation that makes a blended family as you've had children with someone else and that's right or donor or surrogacy right. there's so many things foster so I just think it's just such a rich rich world but here's the one of the really cool things is that step family mothers same sex mothers right so two women they come together and that they form a blended family the research shows that they actually have more flexibility and more flow, and they're able to do these transitions even more quickly than traditional heterosexual families. And one of the thoughts about that is that it's, to some degree, it's a gender role. So it's not that you're particularly special or great if you happen to be gay. <laughs> it's actually that you have two women that are both working at this so that women, there are just some gender differences related to that that are kind of interesting. And like when you have a household of two women, often you're going to have the custody, the residential custody of the child. Whereas with two men, you're most frequently going to be... Oh, the non-custodial. The non-custodial, right. Not the custodial, but the non-custodial parent. And that raises all kinds of other things, right? That when you don't get to see your child very often, what happens when you when they show up? Right. right. They become the center of the world. Where do you want to eat? What do you want to do? It's almost like dating your child. It can be if we're not mindful of it. And then that's, and that's going to be true, of course, oh, totally in, in, in same sex and, and uh, heterosexual step in when you have the only child, you have the non-custodial parent oftentimes has a real difficult time doing the limit setting and the boundary because they feel fearful of any negativity that the child might develop when they have such a short time. What's so important to remember about that, and that is that when we grow up and we remember our parents and we think about them from this deepest level, it isn't the woohoo times and the the six flag times that we remember. It actually is the boundary times, the times when you feel the parent can really hold the limits with you. That's actually the deeper amount of parenting. So we want to encourage those non-custodial parents, whether they're same sex or heterosexual, that if you're in that role, that it's still really important to have the, the chores and the rules and to help them integrate, that they will actually feel more part of things that way in a healthier way than if you maintain sort of a fear-based role that says, yeah, let's go do everything fun. I love that we're getting to this. And I know this, I love it because it's so, so important. And because who doesn't competitively parent, <laughs> right? But so even the person that has custody, what you did that with them and, you know, but I'm your mother, you know, and so that happens. But also you see that with same-sex families as well. Like, two people going to the child and both wanting to occupy the mother role. And so all of that is sort of the nuances of what same-sex couples work out. Another one of the differences is that they often have less support from extended family. And I think that's, I don't know, this is now I'm just talking out of my experience and my guess, but I think that's probably less true now. But certainly before there was a much greater chance that there had been either by the parent of the child's own choice or through being disowned or kicked out of churches or what have you, that there's more often a disruption, which then that also affects the child related to grandparents and aunts and uncles and things like that. So a little less support then in issues that may come up in a blended family. Respect. Right, in a heterosexual blended family. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. 
And, you know, we wanted to get to that because it really, like we said, only 23% are heterosexual, biological, <laughs> married, first marriage kids. So, you know, the audience we're speaking to is so colorful and wide. And there's so many ways to form a family. And we really want to help you guys do it in the most loving, slow, <laughs> that would be some of our parting advice, is to slow it down. It's all going to be okay. If the relationship is right, it's still going to be right in six months. Don't expect it to be ideal in the first couple of years. We don't want to scare people off because blended families are wonderful. They have so many positive aspects to them. But to understand and going in that it's going to be difficult, then you won't be so shocked. The fall won't be so hard if you're not expecting it to be just easy and ideal. And to know that it will also be different at different developmental periods, bringing in an older adolescent in as opposed to a nine-year-old child is going to be a very different experience. And don't hesitate to get help in this process by a professional that already has a lot of expertise in this area. So my, my last thought on this is that if you hang back and wait, and you just hang back and wait, those kids are going to want you around and they're going to be curious about you. And there's going to be a little mystery. And uh, you mean with the step parent, right, right. How not to be portrayed as a <laughs> negative evil one. That's right. Because if you hang back a little bit and let it happen at a slower pace where the kids can be caught up, then they're not going to feel intruded upon or the, that intrusion will be a lot less. And it might mean that you have to slow down the pace of the adult relationship see them more, you know, when the kids aren't there, things like that, and kind of more slowly wind your way in and create the right. friendship and create the relationship with the kids from a dating perspective. But I'm just telling you, don't worry about going slow. Slow is fast. Slow is fast. Slow is such a great recommendation, Sue, because, you know, kids are so, depending on what age, kids are also so smart and so perceptive. And if anybody, if you go in and you try and you're anxious too much at the beginning to go and take them to do those special things and create that bond as fast as possible, that in and of itself can make a, a child kind of put the brakes on because they can just feel that it's not something naturally happening. So coming in as a step parent is a slow process and letting that relationship develop, I think is our best advice. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I hope that you found today's episode useful and please feel free to share it with anybody that you, that comes to mind as you, as we were talking that could use it. And we're about to launch. We are in the process of producing a very exciting thing, which is a free course on modern adult attachment 101. It's called the updated basics. And we're going to put that in the show notes. It's at Eventbrite and you, you go to Eventbrite and you look for Therapist Uncensored, but we're going to actually put the link in the show notes so you can go right to it. And what we encourage you to do is get on there and sign up for the waiting list. And that way you'll be informed as soon as it's available. And if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, therapistuncensored.com. There you can sign up for our email list. That way you won't miss the very important things. We don't email very often. But the way to get in where we have actually more contact and you'll get a lot more stuff is if you just go to our Facebook page. And by the way, if you sign up for our email list, you're also invited to join our private Facebook page as well. And that way you can interact with one another. Listeners can interact and talk and share links and resources. So that's really cool. But at the very minimum, check us out on Facebook. And if you want to go ahead and sign up for the email list, we'd love to have you. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Patty Olwell, and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.